bitches. Today, I was cleaning out my backpack and found a little bag of Three Musketeer miniatures. It was like Christmas. I was so excited because my period is is looming in the not-so-distant future, and I got a little bit of PMS. I got a lot of PMS. I'm not even going to lie. It is epic over here. And I found Three Musketeer miniatures in my backpack. And they don't even look old. I didn't check the date. Oh, no. I should check the date. Does Three Musketeers expire? Oh, they're good till 2000, March 2017. Ha! Excellent. Excellent timing on my part. I got plenty of time to eat all one, two, four, six, eight. I got ten left. And they were originally... Fuck if I know in the bag. Let's see. Seven pieces is a serving. There are two servings per bag. Fourteen. I only ate four pieces out of this bag before I lost it in my backpack. Isn't that a travesty? Oh, the terror of it. Anyway, I've recovered them just in time to eat them. I feel really lucky today. Tonight. This evening. Whatever. I went to the grocery store earlier. It was a fucking nightmare. Um... And I got uh, some ribs and uh, some Angus beef patties, and um, I didn't get a roast. I wanted a sirloin tip roast, and they didn't have one. It was really annoying. Uh, and some chicken wings. I got some chicken wings, because we're going to wing it up on Sunday. That's right. Anyways. <clears throat> Tonight we're going to discuss story planning, and um, uh, because there are two questions in my Ask Me Anything page, it kind of go hand in hand in this, and so I put them together um, to um, answer them, and um, we're going to see how it goes. Uh, and I think it's really important to discuss these particular two topics as we get closer to um, the battle in July, the Battle of the Five Fandoms. Uh, not so much in April, because April's a mulligan, so we're all doing our own little thing. Um, but when it comes to July, we all have the challenge of, of writing um, a season of television in an episode format. And I think that's really um, something that we need to focus on um, craft-wise as we get closer to July. So that's what we're going to do this evening. Um, I did see my Girl Scout dealer, uh, Cookie Girl, uh, at the store today um she 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 noticed me she come running over with two boxes of peanut butter cookies you know those ones i love those peanut butter cookies um and i had to tell her that i've got three nieces and the girl scouts right now i'm cookied out and she looked at me like i had betrayed her she said you bought cookies from a different girl scout i said i'm related to them and she and her lip quivered she said but but you're my customer. <laughs> well, I don't need any more peanut butter, but if you've got some more <laughs> over there, I'll buy that. And she did. She had some more s'mores. She had some more cookies, and they're actually really good. Um, so I bought a box of some more cookies, and she was, like, looking at me like I had just betrayed her, and it was funny as hell. But you're my customer. But I do have three nieces in the Girl Scouts right now, and it is fierce. It is fierce. I had to buy an equal number of cookies from each one. 
Yeah, it's, it's it's like getting caught in a new hairdresser. You're absolutely right. I just needed a trim. I didn't want to make an appointment. <laughs> Man, those little girls are fierce, aren't they? Now, what I didn't know, and now I do, thanks to my nieces being in the Girl Scouts, is that this is really their only fundraiser, and all the money they make um, during cookie season sustains all their activities through the year um, outside of donations. And so that, you know, it, it kind of makes sense that they'd be all gung-ho about it, um, but man, man, are they gung-ho about it. <laughs> Fierceness, but you're my customer. If she knew my niece's name, she would be calling their houses. I have, I believe this firmly. She would be calling them and saying, you stole my customer. <laughs> Anyways, so the first question is, is, What's the difference between dividing a 100K book into chapters and a 100K season into episodes? Um, one of the things I noticed um, a, a couple of months ago, I, I come across a thread on Facebook, and I didn't respond to it because um, I didn't want to mess with the author's groove on um, what they were doing. Um, but it struck me odd the way she phrased um, her her activities, she said that she was dividing her book into chapters um, by word count. That's not how you do that. <laughs> That's not how I do that. That's not how I do it. Um, to me, a chapter is, uh, it can be anywhere from 2,000 words to 10,000 words. It isn't about the word count when it, when it comes to a chapter in a novel. A chapter is... Um, has a goal, and once you reach that goal, you need to even out um, the edges, front and back, and move to your next chapter, whether that chapter um, is 4,000 words, 5,000 words, 10,000 words, that isn't the point. Um, a chapter is made of scenes, and when you go into a chapter, um, when I go into a chapter, I have a goal for that chapter, and I build that goal through chapters through um, events and scenes so while my book has an overall arc my chapters have arcs in that I am defining a goal meeting that goal and then moving to the next goal in order to forward my plot um, <clears throat> so the difference between an episode and a chapter an episode is a short story. It is normally a single event and exploration of the ramifications of that event. If you look at how TV is um, structured, you will see, especially when it comes to like cop shows, how they tell you a single story, and then that story is closed, and it's done. And then move to the next one. And sometimes there are threads and themes in those episodes that will continue throughout the rest of the season. And a really awesome example of that is Babylon 5, which told you individual stories, but also told you a very large story, not only over a single season, but over five seasons. <laughs> 
There is a huge arc in Babylon 5 that starts with episode 1 and ends with the final episode in season 5. So he tells you a big story by telling you little stories in the middle. So when you're telling a season of of episode when you're, when you're telling a season of television, um, you are telling a big story with little stories, and that's what your episodes are. They're little stories. They're short stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end, where you're exploring an event that has an overall reach for the rest of your series plot. So it's, and that's the difference because uh, your chapters aren't aren't short stories. Your chapters are segments of um, a bigger story being told. So when you look at the difference between a chapter and an episode, it's best to think of an episode as a short story that's part of a bigger story, whereas a chapter is is a series of moments connected with a common theme. Because when you move into a new chapter, your theme should change just a little bit as you progress through your book. Your events gain momentum. Your characters grow. They move through scenes. And these scenes are created through the use of um, chapters. You've got your external motivations, who is driving your characters through your plot, you guys are killing me with the cookie talk. I don't have any cookies. They're downstairs where I don't eat them all. There's all the cookie talk in the chat room. And it's my own fault because I brought them up. But now I really want some more cookie. And it's downstairs in my kitchen. And I'm stuck on my phone. My Skype. And I can't go go get the cookie. So So stop. <laughs> Anyway, so I hope that what I'm saying actually makes sense since you guys are all talking about cookies. Um, in that uh, when you're building episodes, you're you're focusing on uh, event short storytelling. And when you're um, doing a book, uh, you're grouping scenes together to create chapters to make an entire um, novel in a very different format. So I hope that makes sense um, to you, A.K. And um, if it doesn't, please feel free to leave another question on the um, on the page. <clears throat> My favorite is the Dosey Dose. I'm not going to lie. I, I really enjoy the Dosey Dose. But also the S'more cookies are excellent. And I also tried the um, the new ones, the, the gluten-free caramel, caramel, whatever how you want to say it, Um Sandy cookies, they're sandies. They're they're like pecan sandies, but instead of pecans, they're um caramel. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Toffee. It's toffee. Oh, it's really good. It, they're excellent. Anyways, but dozy does are my favorites. Uh terrible Girl Scouts. Terrible. Terrible. I got six boxes of cookies. But yeah, they have 
the Girl Scouts have two gluten-free cookies this year. The um, s'mores, I believe, are gluten-free, and they have these um, toffee sandy cookies, and they're gluten-free. Uh, very good. They're but they're like a pecan sandy. If you, if you've ever had a pecan sandy, um, it's a very dry cookie. Uh, but it's very good. It's it's very good with coffee and tea. I think it's more like a biscuit than I would say like a regular cookie. Like you know. Anyways, they're very good. <clears throat> okay, the second part of um, the official question is from Susan, um, and she's wondering if I could dedicate part of the episode to defining um, an idea by word count. And um, a lot of times you have a small idea and you think that's not big enough for a book and you write a little short story with it and you move on. And and sometimes your goal is to write a little short story and you end up with a 100K epic and you don't know how that happened. And that's because some ideas lean themselves to making connections and making bigger ideas happen. So one of the ways that I determine whether or not an idea um, is a small story or a big story is that I I let my mind kind of go a little bit and I think about the ramifications of my plot. Um, and you've seen me do that to Jilly. I, I did that to Jilly with, with her Star Trek bunny um, where I just kind of like, laid out all the ramifications of her initial plot point. And that's just how I think. That's how my brain works. And so when I'm trying to figure out what kind of idea I want, um, where I want my idea to go, I will kind of spin that out and, and see what ramifications are. Now, when it comes to determining your word count based on your plot, I say all the time that it is based seriously. It is based on experience. This isn't something that you can definitely say, okay, I'm going to tell this action scene in 2,000 words. I can say that. I can say I'm going to do that in 2,000 words, but I might not. You know, But experience has taught me that I can write a meeting, a greeting, a sex scene in about 5K. I can write a phone conversation in about 800 words, depending on the content of of it. Um, so if I'm going to have a meeting, um, a phone conversation, an argument, maybe a sex scene, I'm I'm looking at between five and six thousand words in my chapter. So just knowing how much it takes when I'm doing, if I scene map a plot and I take my chapter and I define my scenes. I can say, okay, my fight scene is going to be 900 words. Um, The escape is going to be 300 words. Uh, The conversation afterward, that's going to be 1,500 words because I'm always more more dialogue-focused than I am anything else. Uh, And so by scene mapping, I can say that, okay, my chapter is going to be about 7,000 words based on my scene map. Is it always accurate? No. Absolutely not. But it's an estimate I can give my brain to work with. And it kind of confines me. So 
especially when I'm working in professional works and I have a maximum word count, because um, when you're working in print markets um, and they tell you they want 75,000 words and you give them 100, you've violated your contract. And that's money. That's money you're not going to make. And that could be money you have to pay back if you can't get that novel under 75k to meet the contract that you signed and that's why um writing on spec can be very dangerous for a for a pantser <laughs> someone because it, it, it's actually not that great for a plotter like myself because um i had a uh idea I wrote a treatment for it, and I, and I wrote a synopsis, and I handed it over to my agent, and she shopped it, and I got a, I got an offer, and I got a check. Well, of course, I got a contract. They said, okay, we need it to be 75K. Okay, I signed that contract. I had a whole year to put this book together, right? Whole year. They send me a check. It's a decent check. I'm pretty pleased with this check. I cashed this check. I am now 5000 dollars in the hole with a publisher and all I have to deliver to them is a 75k novel in a year I can hammer that out in a month and a half truth be known because I can write 10,000 words a day if I'm motivated oh okay six months later after I've cashed this lovely check my novel is finished and it is 92,000 words Thankfully, I had six months to edit it down to 75K because I, I called my editor and I was like, so, I finished? And she says, great, can I see it? I said, it's too long. She says, well, how long is too long? Because I could deal with about 80. I said, it's about 92. <laughs> she said, I can't deal with 92. I said, I know, I know, I'm working on it. <laughs> I just want to let you know I finished it. And um, she said, well, if you can't pare it down, um, send it to me, and I'll do some cuts, and I'll send you back an edit, and we'll, and we'll go from there. Um, since I never want to have somebody else cut my shit for me, I cut that shit down to 74,992 words. Boom. Like that. <laughs> there was... I don't want anybody else doing that shit for me. So, um... When you're in that kind of market situation, you really do have to pay attention to um, your word count. And on the other side of it, if I had produced only, say, 50K, I would have also been outside of my contract, which was technically 70 to 75K. So producing 50K isn't enough for a trade paperback. I am again, I would have been again in violation of my contract and $5,000 in the hole to a publisher who's going to want that book to be exactly what they asked for or they're going to want their money back. So when you're plotting, um, it's good to know how big your idea is or how small your idea is. And one of the ways that you can do that is to explore the ramifications of your idea, like your original plot. How is, um, what happens here, here, and here? How many words do you need to, to discuss the ramifications? How do you get to this event? How many characters are you going to have? Because the more characters you have in a story, the bigger your word count will be. Characters equal bloat. If you have two characters... 
shit's going to be small. Unless they are wordy, thinky motherfuckers, you're going to have a really small story to tell. If you have 20 characters, then please don't give all 20 of them a fucking POV. But if you've got 20 characters, you're, you're looking at 100K. Just based on character movement in your story, you're looking at 100K. Easily. Easily 100K. Um, so, uh, earlier someone had mentioned, um, especially if you give background, if you give them care, if you give, if you give them development, if they have conversations, I mean, you're easily pushing over a hundred K just based on your character list. I'm not talking about, you know, like background characters, like the bartender or the cab driver or the guy who gets your luggage at the airport. Not that kind of thing. But I'm talking, if you give 20 characters actual real names, um, you have bloated your word count easily to 100K. Easily. I think that the rule of thumb, if you're looking at, um, say, 75 to 90k, which is the average romance novel that that's published in today's market, your character goal should be around 10, 10 characters. You you have your main character, you, you have your two main characters. You have, you have your protagonist and your antagonist, and you have your her, your, your heroine. Um, so hero, heroine, and villain. <clears throat> you need to strip out your vanity. Um, now. Your hero will have a supporting cast. Um, it's usually a best friend or a brother or a parent. Um, same thing with your heroine. She's going to have um, um, moments uh, with other people, somebody she works with, her best friend, her sister. So that's another character. So your your hero is going to come with two or three characters automatically, his entourage. Say you give him two. So that's three characters right there. Your heroine is going to have two to three characters in her background. It's going to have a best friend, a sister, or whatever. That's three. Give her three. So that, that's six characters already. You got your villain, whatever your villain may be, um, whether it's just circumstances. If it's circumstances, you can get four or five characters out of a circumstance situation. Um, but if it's an actual person, they're going to have an entourage. You're looking at nine characters right now. You're already at your limit. That's why romance novels have a formula. I'm going to put Julie on because she's the plotter in our in our squad. Um, did I get the wrong number? I'm not Julie. You're not Julie. Yes, did. Hi, Lady Holder. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, while I have you on, I'm going to ask you um, a question, mm-hmm. and then you you can answer the question, sure. and then I'll flip over to Julie and see how she answers it. Um Okay, fair enough. You've written a, um, you've written a series of uh, short stories professionally. Um, mm-hmm. How did you determine? Say, I'm going to write nine um, k for this story, and that's what you're going to do because you're a pantser and you approach it differently than I do. So I'm curious as to how you determined what your word count was going to be and and how you met it. Um, when I did all the various um, stories that I've got, I actually figured out how many chapters I wanted, what I wanted to have happen in the chapters. And some people just got a very bare mention. Um, It worked out okay because I could um, 
in some ways skimp on it because I didn't need to add much. Um, also because, quite frankly, there was a great deal of vicious editing at the end, and a lot of bloat got taken out. <laughs> and there were whole chunks of stuff that, that disappeared. And there, were, there was um, one whole um, subplot that disappeared from the story. It didn't have anything to do with it. It didn't advance the story, so it went bye-bye. And I think that's so it. So it was a, a vanity subplot that you had in there that you, that, that you got rid of. It was a vanity subplot, now, yeah. So do you think your vanity subplot appeared because you don't plot like an OCD Just freak like me? <laughs> Did my, my vanity um, plot ha- happen because I'm OCD? No. My no, vanity because subplot I'm a... happened because I... Hello! Because you're, he's an asshole. <laughs> He's home, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. One day I'm going to meet your husband and I'm going to punch him right in the face. Husband? The quote is, one day she's going to meet you and punch you right in your face. She's short enough that it's probably better to punch me in the ball because she would have to climb a, a <laughs> That was just mean. Meanness. <laughs> that was so mean. Meanness. Mean. That was so mean. I can't help it. I have a single pair of shoes that I wear out of the house. It doesn't give me four to five inches of height. So I'll be tall enough. No, you won't, honey. My sister's your height. She's still not tall enough. (laughs) Oh, kiss it. Suck it. Suck a fuck, all of y'all. All All (laughs) y'all. Yeah, we love you, too. Anyways, what I was saying is, is that I don't often. I mean, I, I'll have vanity scenes, but a, but a whole vanity subplot mm-hmm. doesn't happen to me. And I'm wondering if it's because you're a pantser at heart, and it just kind of sneaks in on you. What is something that you planned? Because, okay. Well, in this case, it was a. It was something I actually did kind of want because it it um, explained a secondary character who was close to my first one, and it gave a little bit more background into into. Um, my protagonist. So mm-hmm. it was a nice little thing that I thought, and I just added it in, and hey, I thought it worked out great, and off we went. Not so much, no. It got ripped out. And <laughs> yeah, off it went. It worked out for me. Um, it was a tighter story for it being gone, but, you know, in some ways, um, I like some ways I liked it because it was it was a nice, you know, let's add something further to this person, round them out a little bit more. Um, it might have been vanity. I don't know. You know, it's it, quite honestly, it's new, I was new at it. You know, the, the story in question well, was, was number two that I've ever, I'd ever written I, professionally. What I would say is that, um, that vanity scenes, they're okay if – What I'm trying to say, um, sometimes say that you're supposed to be writing 75k for a contract, and you get to 70, and mm-hmm. you're done. Um, at that point, that's when you let your diva out, and you go back through and you add some vanity because you need to make your shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to make your work yeah. count, and that's how you do it. And if the editor takes it out, that's on them, not you. <laughs> True. Like I wasn't saying yeah, okay, and, and now I'm at sixty, and it's your fault. 
And so your editor is not that in a professional setting. If you have to have 75K, they're going to keep you above 75K. So I, you know, I've indulged in, in vanity scenes, especially vanity sex scenes that really didn't further my plot. Because in romance, specifically in romance, you can get away with padding your word count by adding sex scenes. Yes. My, um, being honest about the whole thing, the first book I wrote, I actually didn't have the the first sex scene in there. And then my oh-so-lovely alpha reader slash handholder said, put sex in here. And I went, okay. And there goes sex. And it added to my work count. Well, yeah, because sex will. So, I mean, if you, if especially yeah. in the romance, um, that that is one area where if you need more word count, um, adding mm-hmm. sex or adding moments of intimacy with your character, um, can be seen as character development, um, and you can get away with it. Your reader's going mm-hmm. to enjoy it. Your editor probably isn't going to cut it, unless it fucks with your pace or your flow, and th- and that's an entirely different situation. Um, I'm going to put you on hold and ask Julie the same question. Uh, thank you. Okay. And tell him I'm glad he's You're home welcome. and kiss my butt at the same time. I can do that. <laughs> okay. Bye. All right. Bye. I get you mixed up, and you're not even in the same state. <laughs> well, no, we do have the three same numbers for our area codes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, uh, I guess, you know, it's kind of a different question, um, for you because, uh, you're not exactly in the same circumstance that she was in that I was asking about, but, um, how do you estimate word count? Um, well, when I, um, I've talked a little bit before about how I do a, um, a critical series of events, um, list as opposed to like, um, a scene, a scene map, and mm-hmm. I can you know usually look at an event and go okay, or a critical list of things that need to happen, and say okay, it's going to take me you know touching on this in at least four chapters, and I can kind of guess that that event is going to take two thousand words to resolve, um, spread out over possibly multiple chapters, and then some things I'll just you know I know I'm going to have. Um, like you said, a sex scene here and a sex scene there um, and a sex scene there. So factor in, in this story, I'm anticipating three sex scenes, you know, first get together, you know, this thing, and then right towards the end, so that's 1,500 words. And and sometimes I just also just can kind of hear an idea. Um, so when I'm trying to actually figure out a realistic word count, like when I plotted Slytherin Black, I went into it trying to plot 100,000 words. And um, once I had the critical list of scenes and I started trying to apply some word counts to the events that needed to happen, I knew I was well over 150,000 and probably mm-hmm. going to push closer to 200,000. Well, you have a large character list there. Um, yeah, plus, geez. you have a lot of events going on in the background. Um, um, lots of little subplots and things together. And each time you... A subplot in itself, um, especially in a novel... Um, I don't think a subplot really needs to be in a short story, but that is your decision. <laughs> but in a subplot in a novel, I mean, it can easily add ten thousand words to your word yeah. count. And it and it's it, it's ten thousand words that can be hard to account for because it's drifting under your plot. 
it's not like it's just you sit down and write 10,000 words and you write out your subplot. Um, and, yeah, and especially with that, that one was particularly hard to estimate because it's all being done in the series' point of view. So there's a lot of events that have to happen, but actually they would be less words if Sirius was involved in them than Sirius prepping somebody else and then hearing about the results. Mm-hmm. So, and in some cases it's less words. It's like, okay, I think this is going to be less words um, if for it being in Sirius's POV because it's not a really critical event. Um, and actually the single POV writing was really interesting about exposing, um, for me, um, some of those so some things that are vanity scenes that I might not have thought that they were because I thought I'm gonna have to put two thousand words into serious hearing about how this Horcrux retrieval went and then I went, Oh, who gives a shit? Nobody cares about how that exactly how the Horcrux retrieval went. They just got it. Big fucking deal. You know, they got it in the book too. So <laughs> <laughs> there's a scene in Unspeakable Plot where Harry and Hermione are in the dueling room and McGregor arrives with the ring. He's retrieved the ring of Slytherin. Um and Harry just asked him how it went and he's like, It's fine <laughs> It went fine. <laughs> and that was it. There was I mean, obviously there was if I had written that particular scene, it would have been five, ten thousand words because I had Thaddeus there and he's a parcel mouth and they went to little Hangleton and it it would just been it'd been big fucking terrible mess in the middle of my plot yeah Yeah, it it would have been huge um what i learned in writing in a single pov is that i greatly depend on um secondary povs to build conflict it's a crutch for me and and i didn't even know i had it until i had to give meat to Dumbledore's actions and didn't have a way to do it, which is why I ended up using the house elves to spy and um, the pensive memories, because uh, I was having a difficult time giving Dumbledore three dimensions in my plot. He was very flat and very um, it was just, it was, it was difficult. And the thing about my story in particular is because Harry and Draco kill indiscriminately <laughs> in Darkly <laughs> Loyal, <laughs> which was my first, um, we, 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 which was my single POV story, I had to give background motivation for the people they killed. Otherwise, they looked like monsters. That they, they looked as dark as Tom Riddle, without background information that I had no way of giving because I was in Harry's POV strictly. And I isolated him almost immediately in the story on the island. <laughs> I was like, oh God, what do I do now? I can't... <laughs> fuck! <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> and so, you know, Dobby came along and like J.K. Rowling, I used him to solve all my problems. <laughs> <laughs> And at first, I remember, I seemed to recall at first, like, no, I'm not having hell cells in this story. <laughs> and then, you're like, I'm having hell cells in this story. Any more than one. <laughs> I need I need two, three, there could be a hundred, I don't know. I need a uh, it was, just, it was, it was It was a really frustrating experience to realize how much I depended on a, um, an additional POVs to um, round out um, events in my plot. 
Because I'm someone who's very comfortable writing in first person. I could do a whole novel in first person. But I'm considering it. I'm considering doing a first novel, a, a first person project. Um, I have this in fandom thing that, ha- that happens in first person, and I don't know why. I've tried because I did one um, first person um, short of uh, uh, workshop prompt, the big short prompt. I did one, and uh, I've written first person stories before, but there's this thing that happens where I tend to go into present tense in first person. And it's this constant backing up and changing my verbs. It drives me crazy. <laughs> well, I don't want to write first person present you, tense. If you do that, then you definitely need to work on it so you'll stop. Stop it. Because the only way you'll stop doing <laughs> those bad things is to continue is to is to work on them. And the short prompts are, are, are a really good way to do that. True. But I but I am um I am interested in it. In doing a, a first person um, fandom project, I just don't know what it would be. Um, I'm on the fence about it. I think I think you know some comments. They have a hard time doing a single single POV in the story. I thought that I would. Um, I was so worried about it because she announced uh, it was going to be a single POV challenge while we were still in July, and so I did my third July story that year in a single POV to try it out. Um, it's actually quickly become my comfort zone, the single POV. I mean, I still, it's weird. I mean, I still write stories in multiple points of view, but it, I think it, like, like I may have been like the one writer that went, this was so much fun. <laughs> well, I enjoy um, single POV in in short works. In in long works, I feel like it cripples me a little. It um It, I need a broader stage when I'm in 100K. Say for instance, um, I can. I think I'd be comfortable even at 50k in a, in a single POV. But if I've got multiple subplots going on and a whole bunch of characters, I need more room. In a single POV, kind of binds you up. But I think with first person storytelling, that there is a difference because yeah. in first person storytelling, you have a very intimate POV, and um. It can be a very beautiful writing experience. I highly recommend that everybody learn to write in first person. It's it's lovely. I mean, it, it really is. Um, I enjoy reading first person. Um, the only POV that I have a real, real serious problem with would be second person. Ugh. I hate second person. I can't read second person. I don't want to write second person. And to be perfectly frank, second-person writers don't tell me when to come. There is no, there is no way I could read second-person erotica without wanting to punch somebody. No, that'd be terrible. But we've talked before about how a little bit that my my third person tends to be a deeper POV, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why the single POV writing was so comfortable. Is because for me it was that I was able to just it's pretty close to being first person without being first person um, in terms of how deep into serious POV I got in that story. Um, so for me, for that particular story, it really worked, but it also was extremely serious centric. So it helped that I didn't have um, more characters to be concerned with. Um, but I don't know that I could, you know, but I think, I think you have to have that kind of the right plot. Um, 
to not feel really hampered by um, the single point of view for more than probably, like you said, a short story. But so I don't know that I would find another 200,000-word story that I could um, do in a single point of view. I think that, like you said, I would start to feel like I was hamstringed. I just kind of stumbled onto um, a story in that particular case that I felt like it worked better to stay in one POV. Um, on Lady Holder mentioned I Spy in um, the chat room, and that is my only first-person story that I currently have up on my site. Um, it's, it's written in first-person in, in McKay's point of view, um, and I got the most interesting responses to that, I have to say. Uh, many people were put off by it. I, I was really surprised um, how people were Hi. put off by Rodney's POV in first person when they probably would not have been put off by it if it had been written in third. Because hmm. there is a deep intimacy in, in first person that you can't look away from. That you have to... And the thing is, is that um, I didn't write Rodney any differently than I ever have before. That is the same Rodney I always write. Always. That is the same Rodney that I always write. But in first person, you get a deeper look at how his brain works. And apparently, I made some of you bitches uncomfortable. <laughs> he doesn't just say those things. He actually thinks those things. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also, it's, it's good to keep in mind that no one says everything they think. No, no. we don't, wouldn't want them to. We don't need the world with fewer brain-to-mouth filters than it's got now. But, um, yeah, you know. So Susan always also asks, how do you know if an idea is too large for a given word count? Um, you know, and if I did, that that's one of those things that sometimes somebody tells me, like sometimes um, – like in, Ju- in July when people are posting their project files. And this is not critical. It's more of a case of um, re- I'll read the project files, and you know, we've got a word count of ten to 15,000. And I read that idea and go, that is 50,000, 60,000 words. How are they going to pull this off? Um, and sometimes the writer does something that I'm not expecting and pulls out their word count. And other times they get to the end, they get, they get to 15,000 and go, I'm going to go way over and I go, well, you know, after they're going, well, yeah, you're going to go way over because that idea is huge. Um, you got 20 characters and 10 subplots. <laughs> or you're making something really difficult happen, you know, a very difficult plot happen. Um, it's just not going to um, – but like we talked about with short stories, short stories have one kind of contained idea. Mm-hmm. You're trying to achieve one thing, you know. So we've talked about with because uh, we tried doing a, like a little prep for that for the for the last year in July is trying to you know get people to think about you know for ten to fifteen k you're trying to achieve one thing, you know. Are you trying to get your characters together and bonded? You know, what are you trying to achieve? What is your main plot point that you're trying to achieve? Because you can't you can't scale a lot of mountains in ten to fifteen thousand words. You can you can scale one. Um, and, as you long know, as it isn't a Harry Potter mountain. Yes, it's always not a Harry Potter mountain because there's so much world building in Harry Potter 
that and world building you have to when you apply a fusion to something that's already a already has a strong um alternate universe world building to it as well just just reconciling how those that how you take that AU and you know that fantasy AU and fuse it with the sentinel stuff that that's going to take you probably 5000 words alone just and you don't want to do it all at once cuz that's exposition is boring but you're going to have to you know feed in how the sentinel guide thing has tweaked the the universe so that's a that's a big undertaking and you wouldn't it's very difficult to do um now one solution one hand wave is to just not is to just write a very contained short sentinel and guide meet in the you know great hall and they go off and bond and you don't address any of the questions um that are inherent in how does a sentinel and guide you know function in the magical universe and how does that change the rules of the harry potter universe you could just not address it um but doesn't mean those questions aren't there And that's a hard question for me. As a, the way I write, it's hard for me not to address those questions. So that factors into my word count. Whereas some authors don't have a problem ignoring that and in uh, going, I'm not going to address it, and saying I'm, I can hit a 10,000 word Harry Potter story that's a Sentinel fusion. Whereas I could never do that. I couldn't because it's just I would I like I think it's I think it's because of my attachment to world building that I want to explore what the world building changes are and what the world really looks like and what the ramifications of sentinels and guides are. Um, maybe that's world building vanity. I don't know. I'm more interested, I think, in character building. Um, I like to move my character and twist them around a little bit from what they are in canon and, and explore that twist. Um And world building sometimes takes a back seat to that. For me, it's still in the car. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just in the back seat. <laughs> but yeah, when I hear when somebody gives me an idea in terms of how is this story, how do you know a story is what size? Um, sometimes I just. I guess from estimating my own word counts for so long, I can just go, well, it would take me 50,000 words to tell that story or 75,000 words to tell that story. And um, But would it take somebody else 50, 75,000 words to tell that story? And, and that's, that's where it's a kind of more of a matter of, I could look at somebody's idea that they put up in a project file on Rough Trade, and they're saying that their word count is going to be 40,000 words, and I'm going, I don't know that I could tell that story in 400,000 words. And maybe they can, but it's because it's just it's a difference in, in approach and writing style. Um, I did the and, same thing all the time. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure about that? <laughs> because you've got 22 characters on your on your casting page. <laughs> well, it's like when we I don't up, even know we, what to do with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When we, when you and I put up our um, when we did the hundred thousand word challenge last November. With Darkly Loyal and, and Slytherin Black, or that wasn't last month, not not this past month. That was November, no, before last. Before yeah. before that, um, the way back. Um, when I when I read when I saw yours, I knew yours wasn't a hundred thousand words, and you knew mine wasn't a hundred thousand words. But that was all we were copying to. <laughs> now I 
I I anticipated mine to be around 150, and I was um, looking at it, preparing it for April because I I am going to do it for April's Mulligan. Um, because um, I really don't have any other thing that remotely interests me. Um, and I I I do think I'm going to end up around 150, maybe 175, but I think that was like 175 is really ambitious. Um, I think my story is going to be done around 150, 155. I think I probably have about thirty-five, forty k left to write, we, which is just fine for April because I got a lot of shit going on. Yeah. Mine depends upon um, whether or not I explore two of the two two little side plots that I had cooked up for this story, and whether or not I kind of go down that path or not. And if I don't. Um, it'll rain in and probably I'll I'll finish it in about thirty five or forty thousand words. Um but if I go down that other path it probably adds another like, I don't know, sixty thousand words. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, another sixty thousand words. This will be a whole fucking new novel. <laughs> well it was my it was my it was my original <laughs> plot included this included this this arc with um the long bottom, and if I, sh- it's not strictly necessary though. Um, it's not, um, it's not necessary for the story that I'm telling to go that direction. And I've kind of looked at it and tried to decide if I want to keep it or not. And uh, um, I don't know. I still haven't made up my mind. Um, so, but I do recognize that it's a lot of complication. That 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 plot point is a lot of complication. And I recognize, you know, that it's going to take a lot of words to tell that plot point. Um, So, and if I take it out, I actually have to go back and change some of the things earlier in the story. So, it's because I've been laying the groundwork for it, and I would take it out if I have to go back and change things if I took that out. So, but you know, it's not. um, I think once you get used to breaking out, once you've written, you know a dozen sex scenes, you start to get a feel for how long it takes you to write a sex scene. Because um, you mentioned, like, you know, you know how many words it takes you to write a sex scene, how many words it takes you to write an action scene, how many words it takes you to write whatever. Um, so once you have start getting a feel for how long it takes you to... Um, one of the things I find the most unpredictable are court scenes. Um, oh, me too. They can be a 1,000 words or they can be 15,000 words. It's like... <laughs> just never know where that shit's going, especially in Harry Potter. I know some right. of they really enjoyed my court scenes in Harry Potter, but I find them very vexing. <laughs> I never well, know you what... Know, it's like, you figure it's like, is it... Because you get in this mode, because like, it's not like you, if you... You don't know exactly how the scene's going to completely go. I mean, you know where it's going to end. You know what the point of it is. But sometimes you get to asking... You get to in that asking questions mode. And as you're sitting there going, oh, well, why didn't I think of this when I was planning? That question needs to be asked. I will ask that question too. And I'm going to pin him down about this. And then it's just like these things <laughs> coming out of the... It's like you're all like, of this stuff. And fuck. It's like you're having a whole moment. And you're like, oh, and now I need to ask him this because I've always wanted to know the answer to this. <laughs> like you're not in complete control of what's going on. But, you know... Um, so some things are a little harder to estimate than others, and I would say one of the things that's really hard to estimate is, is how long a trial is going to take. Um, but for the you know, but once you get an idea of you know how long it's going to take you 
to get through. Um, but you also have to be um, cognizant of how easily you're derailed um, as, okay, so for instance, um, if you're writing um, like an episode tag, like let's say you're writing an episode tag to Dead Air. Now, typically I think of episode tags as being like really short things that start somewhere in the episode and change the episode or at the end of an episode and have consequences to something or whatever. But you can start, you can write a long novel that starts as an episode tag. It picks up from the end of Dead Air or whatever. Now, are you a writer who can pick up from the end of the episode, summarize the things that were critical, and start writing your story? Because that's one set of word count. Or are you a writer who needs to retell the episode, which we've talked about. I tend to find find that a little bit annoying. But some writers can't kind of get into the headspace unless they've retold how the characters what their characters' thoughts were throughout the entire episode. And that's a different word count skill that I wouldn't even know how to project for somebody. If somebody you know, because somebody asked me, well, how many words do you think it would take to retell Dead Air so that you get Tony's thoughts and stuff as the episode is going on? I'm like, I have no idea, because A, I wouldn't do it, and it's not a, it's not a word count estimation skill that I even remotely have. If I was going to do a Dead Air tag, I would start it, in the car when McGee and Ziva told him they had not been listening to him. Yeah, I've always wanted one where he gets mad right then and is like, what the fuck is the matter with you two? Drags their asses back to NCIS and writes them the fuck up right there, right then. That's where I start my episode tag. Now, I don't write many episodes tags. I wrote one for um, NCIS um, is that the Jeffrey Y episode? Yes, the Chained. Yeah, and I wrote Unchained. I think I, 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 think I called mine Unchained. I think you did. I think Any- one of us called our, our cause we were writing those at the same exact time. One of us called it the Broken Chain, and the other called it Unchained, or something like that. I think I honestly can't remember. I honestly can't remember which one's which. Yours is Broken Chain. Mine's Unchained. Well, there you go. Pretty sure. Regardless, I I did write that um, episode tag, but that's not really how my brain works on a, on a whole. But I was just trying to get my process kind of moving, so I, I wrote those tags. But if I wrote a dead air tag, it it would start in the car. We weren't just sharing a brain; we were sharing a conversation. <laughs> Because <laughs> we were we were picking out episodes to write tags for, um, to kind of keep ourselves motivated as we move towards November, and um, we both picked up that episode to write about. Um, and she wrote hers, and I wrote mine, and then, and 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 then we posted them. So that was you know um, an inception, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. But if you're gonna if you're gonna leverage canon a lot um, and canon events and reframe them in your um, or show how they're changed based upon your because I tend to so like what I tend to when I'm addressing canon events with with a few um, with a few exceptions I tend to kind of 
summarize what the canon event was, and then what what the actual writing is is put toward what was different because of the changed circumstances. Or, you know, um, the only time I typically will zoom in on a canon event is when it goes down differently than canon. So there's if if you can just summarize and catch the people who don't remember canon, and people who do remember canon don't need to reread it anyway. Um, so, like in um, the Alpha of Atlantis, when John that whole episode where they find the wraith on the crashed ship, um, I retold a portion of that episode with the wraith that killed the scientists and stuff. But the reason I retold part of it is because it was completely different than the episode because John stepped on him. So there was no big, long, drawn-out gun battle and hiding from each other and hide-and-seek. John just shifted into his dragon form and stepped on a race. Um, <laughs> so it went down very differently than the show, so I, I thought that it would be interesting to see that, you know? <laughs> just stepped on him. <laughs> He's like, where the fuck you going, motherfucker? I think that dragon I form. To, as a rule, avoid episode tags because I kind of see canon as a guideline. <laughs> Just sit over there, canon. It'll be okay. Well, I'm going to tell my story. <laughs> yeah, which is why I feel like if I'm writing, typically I tend to write um, diver- div- where where I'm diverging from canon, not where I'm pick up from where I'm diverging. Um, not... Um, I like to think that most of my stories could be read even if you're not familiar with the fandom. Yeah, I I actually have that hope too. And with the with a lot of with any time I cross over with a with a fandom, um, with a couple of exceptions, you know, I tell people if you don't know the fandom, don't worry about it. So I had a lot of people with um, um, De Novo with Ian Edgerton going, oh, I didn't read that one because I didn't I don't watch numbers. I was like, okay. I explained this in the author notes, but Ian is in, like, six episodes the entire series, and he's spaced out, like, one a year. So um, you don't need... Just look at him as an OC. Yeah, that's what I told him. I said, look at it for... If you don't know the, if you don't know the, can, the show, just think of these people as original characters. You don't need to know who they are. So, um, and my hope is that with the majority of the... Um, um, shows that I do crossovers with that you don't need to have. I've had people actually write me and tell me they didn't need to know NCIS to read my stories, which was a little bit like, well, good. And I'm like, I don't think you've gotten to all of them yet because <laughs> there's a couple where well, you might need a little more knowledge, but whatever. Yeah, a little bit startling. One of the most interesting things that I encounter among my readers is readers who've not seen Stargate Atlantis who buy it or watch it on Amazon Prime because it's currently on Prime for free, or is it on Hulu for free? I can't remember which. I think it's on Hulu now. Um, and they watch it, and they keep waiting for Matt Shepard to show up because <laughs> they don't recognize that he's an OC. And I'll be like, I watched all of Atlantis, and Matt never showed up. <laughs> I'm like, Matt doesn't exist in canon. And they're like, oh, God. Well, the first they, time I read one of your stories, I hadn't seen the Stargate series because um, I came into your stories a few years after you started writing some of them. Um, so, and I hadn't seen you the had show. You had a lot to read. It, it had, <laughs> yeah, I did. So I hadn't seen the show until um, it was um, uh, when it was. I hadn't seen the show since it was on the air, 
And so I'm reading, when I first time I read Matt, I mean, he read like he just fit right in there. And I was, and I vaguely remembered that John's father's name was Patrick and David. And so I was like, I didn't remember that he had two brothers. But <laughs> <laughs> so I was just willing to go with it. I just like, okay, he had two brothers. If I didn't remember it, but that's fine. I don't remember a lot of things. It just, it's really amusing. The first time it happened, I mean, she was like, so where is he? Because <laughs> she's like, she's like a season three. And I'm like, dude, he's not there at all. She's so, <laughs> she said she was going to stop watching it because she only watched it because she wanted to see Matt. I was like, oh, honey. <laughs> You're going to have to go watch Supernatural for that. Or Dark Angel. Or Dark Don't Angel. Watch it. Better Don't yet, watch, watch Dark Angel. Don't watch last episode. Um, I did not see The Sentinel until after I wrote The Awakening. Yes, I did write in a fandom without seeing the actual canon first. Because the, the fandom is much more interesting for The Sentinel. It actually wasn't... It was a show... Because I actually watched it when it was on the air. And it was a show that had um, a lot of, it had, from the beginning, it had potential that it never realized. Um, It was too stuck in trying to be a procedural cop drama. Considering that Jim was a sentinel was bizarre. Um, So it, it just, it just never really felt. And I think the, you know, and the best thing about it was Jim and Blair's, um, interaction i mean jim had this thing for pushing blair into walls and getting all up in his face and he's very touchy and and touchy-feely and um and so it's just you know it was it was it was they were just asking for a slash fandom (laughs) yeah it was it was like from moment one (laughs) but um when what's really interesting is when i got all that flack for um for writing Blair the way I wrote him, it wasn't because I wrote him out of character for the canon, because I didn't. I wrote him out of character for the fanon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> Fuck you. Are you people really bitching that I didn't follow your out-of-character um, rule book? Pussification of Blair Sandberg, yeah, that's exactly what they were bitching about. <clears throat> so, Dark Cersei says she hadn't read the ninety nine, the nineteen ninety nine Magn- Magnificent Seven TV series um, until after she'd read about a million words of fanfic, um, and that's an interesting example because there are a lot of people who, when they finally went and picked up, that happened to a lot of people, they finally went and picked up the, um, this is a show that's in a very unique position. People went to go watch it, and they went, wait a minute, I thought this was based in the ATF. Why is this a Western? I got talked to multiple people who thought that the ATF AU that was created by a fan fiction writer was what the show was. <laughs> and they were stunned because there's more written in that AU than there is in the Old West. And the the, the ATS AU, the modern AUs as a whole, outweigh and outnumber the Old West stories. But that that one particular AU of the ATF is 
the biggest is bigger than the Old West fandom by itself. So um, people would go and pick up the show because there's like two seasons, and a, and a lot of it was actually really good. There's some really interesting character dynamics. And um, the Vin Chris thing was definitely made for Slash. It just it was another one of those character interactions. It was just like, yeah, those those two are definitely going to be having sex. Um, well, what and, startled me when I, when I watched the Sentinel was that the Sentinels weren't known. That was a trope. I, I mean, I didn't expect packs of sentinels like what I wrote, but I didn't expect Jim's being a sentinel to be a secret. <laughs> I was really, I was like, what? Because <laughs> that's and just not. Like, yeah, the, the whole secrecy thing. That's one of the things I actually didn't like, which is why I've never written a. Um, well, that's not true. I did write one, but it was a. Sentinels coming out of the closet story, and it's the story that I accidentally posted under my real name. <sighs> Whatever. So that's one like one of those one side off, you know, offside things. Because if I ever tried to do anything with that story, um, somebody would uh, go. I remember, I remember who wrote that way back in the day. I'd be like, oh, shut up. <laughs> shut your whore mouth. <laughs> But a lot of people wrote stories like that where, you know, Sentinels were unknown, but then they started coming online. Um, Lady Raw did one. Um, anyway, so, um, but it just was, it's just that whole secret, you know, one-of-a-kind thing. Um, I think it's because in reality there's a there's a deep insidious danger that would be stalking Jim and Blair um, because the government would know. They would know what he really was. There was no way that the world, that, that literally everybody would be too stupid to figure out that that, that, that press conference was fake. So um, I think that, that sort of, that implied danger kind of put me off. Um, I can read it, but I can't write it, so... I tend to ignore that to a certain degree, but I also like layer protections in like Sentinels and Guides have their own organizations. They have treaties with the national, you know, just to prevent right. that kind of abuse. You but know, when they're known, but you also sometimes have like a dark history that they've overcome or, but when they're known, when there's millions of them on earth, you can't, you know, things will be different than they are when there's one, you know, and yeah. the government would have snapped him up instantly and some and some writers explored what that would realistically look like and those stories were way too dark for me because that's the reality of what would happen you know well um, it's an interesting like um there's a scene and it, it, it popped right into my head when you said it about in, in captain america where the general um dismissed steve as an asset because he was the only one that he didn't want a super soldier he wanted a battalion of super soldiers and one super soldier couldn't make a difference because one super soldier is an oddity a hundred is an army true and there's that aspect from when it comes to sentinels um, I think the concern with the government would be there's nothing secret we can never discuss anything confidential within the confines of Washington State now. Would be kind of the issue, right? 
is this guy mm-hmm. could find out anything. And I think that the, um, I don't think I, don't, I think certain factions in the government wouldn't deal with that uncertainty very well. I think what it boils down to um, is that I don't think they would trust him enough to use him, despite his military service, despite his service as a cop the civil service. Um I think realistically there are two there are two outcomes for a single sentinel. Permanent imprisonment underground or death. Yeah. There's that whole neutralization thing, because if they can't trust him to use him, then they can't trust him not to be used against them. Mm-hmm. Which is why the single sentinel trope, which is canon, basically. I mean, Alex was, um, Alex is the only one Wacko. Saw. And she was, yeah, and she was in an in asylum by the time of the end of the series. Um, or dead. I, I, I Sometimes you can't tell what's canon and what's fanon. But um, the single sentinel thing was just something I, I never had any real, real interest in writing. Um, that's why all of my sentinel um, stories or sentinels and guides are known. Um, and all that shit's been worked out. <laughs> it's all been worked well, there, out. There, there's power in numbers. There is. I wouldn't mind writing a conspiracy story where Sentinels are underground and they have their own network and they're like the Illuminati. That could be fun. <laughs> and they, as like, and they we like know, secretly we, control the world. <laughs> we already know everything. <laughs> you have no secrets from us. <laughs> That's right. You know, in my um, the Star Trek AU I'm working on, um, I'm reframing the. Um, I hate it when I have word retrieval problems. <sighs> what were the people like Khan called? The people who were modified from the eugenics experiments. Um. Augments. Lady Holder Augment. just told us in the chat room. Thank you. Thank you, Lady Holder Augment. Um, so I decided that, you know, what what uh, um, where I'm starting to launch from that, that story is that what drives them to leave Earth is I'm reframing what the Augments were. And the Augments were all sentinels who they tried to tweak their DNA to make guides unnecessary. Um, so these sentinels could not um, bond with a guy, which is why they they all went crazy, because they fucked with their DNA. So I'm reframing what the augments were. That's terrible. Oh, it is awful. It's really, really dark, ugly thing. And so the history, because because the the governments were um, continually felt like the weak spot um, in the utility of sentinels was guides because guides had too much influence over sentinels. Um, Sentinels were maybe too dependent on guides. 
Um, and guides, they didn't see the, the, util- the value in what guides brought to the table, even though they had the empathic gifts. And they could have been more um, useful, but they just considered that when, even, when, even with the, u- the usefulness of guides, that um, sentinels put guides ahead of their mission. And that they want, kept trying to find ways of bringing the, um, getting the guides out of the picture. And they had just failed and failed and failed, and that the eugenics experiments were about making a perfect sentinel that didn't need this partner. And what they got was a bunch of nut jobs. And um, so <clears throat> at the start of the Federation, when they're starting to found the Federation, they kind of had come, come to a... Um, the governments of the world had kind of come to a peace again with sentinels and guides and kind of left them alone. But then the, the founding of the Federation is coming, and they're asking um, sentinels, "Do you? We, we want you to join the Federation. But they aren't getting any context yet, and they don't know what that means. And all they can think again is, here we go again. Um, and they just decide they can't take the risk. And so they leave. They can't take the risk that the governments, you know, the governments of Earth are going to um, do the right thing finally by them when they've done the wrong thing. Every time they've tried to, you know, conscript sentinels into service, they've done the wrong thing by the guides, and the sentinels aren't having it again. And I think mm-hmm. I think that the the, the budding what would be Starfleet, um, their intention is to do right this time, but the sentinels have already been burned out. They're not going to do it, so that's their the background that makes them go, okay, enough, we're leaving. The last time you guys screwed us over, um, we had a, a whole bunch of sentinels that couldn't form bonds and went insane. So um, they were still drawn to guides. They were very protective of guides, but the only people who were safe from them were guides, but they couldn't bond with them, and it made them crazy. So um, they said, we're just not taking the chance for it. They don't even tell them. They just go, oh, no, here we go again. We are not even going to give you people a chance to screw us over again and kill our guides, so we are taking off. And so they abandon Earth, and there are no more sentinels and guides on Earth. Um, and so that's the how I decided to frame um, what would be so bad that would make them want to leave. And then that way I can bring... Um, con into the story, into the story in a different way, um, with a different different framing, because he's a psycho-sentinel, not just a psycho. Which is scarier. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it is. In a way. Except I have, I have, I have good plans. I have good plans. <laughs> plans. Because who knew there was a way to get Tony DeNozo and Khan in bed together? <laughs> who knew? I can pair anybody if I put enough thought to it. <laughs> That's right. Well, the beauty of Star Trek um, is time travel. I'm not going to do time travel. Just Tony born in that verse? Um, he's born on the um, Sentinel Guide planet, and he's a sh- cool. he's a shaman, and he's picked up by um, um, he's picked up by the he and his um, entourage are picked up to um, 
the behest of the Vulcans for New Vulcan after the first movie to um, their uh, the way I'm going to structure is their their um, the psionic energy harmonics of their new planet aren't quite right, and they need someone who has um, who can set reset those harmonics for them or set them. I have this whole big complicated thing about psionic energy, <clears throat> <laughs> and Tony's the one they send to. Um, help get the because they're 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 not they're not because they have psionic gifts that are telepathic more telepathic in nature and um tony's one that they send to help um get new vulcan more resonant with them so that they can they're they're able to use the psionic energy of their new planet more easily anyway it's, it's a big whole complicated plot around world building around the psionic energy and psionic energy wells and how each one has a different harmonic in the wells and that kind of thing so um but then Sentinels and Guides are starting to pop up on Earth as a result of um, the reverberations of um, Vulcan being destroyed and that amount of um, energy being. Um, yeah, well, actually what Tony's going to do is he's going to harvest the psionic energy well from where Vulcan was and merge it with the energy well on New Vulcan so that they... Um, resonate, um, create a different resonance. Anyway, so, and then Tony agrees to go to Earth because actually what, one of the things that they discovered once they left Earth is that they entered the well on Earth is um, tainted, and it had been tainted from hundreds and thousands of years of guides being murdered. And um, that's why um, guides stopped coming online is because the well is tainted. So he agrees to go to Earth to fix the well and runs into Khan, pre-blowing everything up and doing stupid shit like killing Christopher Pike, which is unforgivable. It is definitely unforgivable. So I think, you know, you got to nip that shit in the bud. I double-birded the screen the moment it happened. Yeah. In the theater, my husband laughed at me. I'm double-birding the screen and my husband is laughing at me. I was furious. I was like, uh, no. I just am not accepting this nonsense. No. <laughs> no. That's not what happened. No. <laughs> and fuck you. <laughs> That's right. And fuck you very much. So speaking of word count, I am that one I'm going to do in episodes, and I'm projecting about um, 180,000 words based upon my plotting so far. There you go, Lady Holder. She's pretty close. <laughs> Lady Holder says 200,000 words plus. It's not that hard to get them in bed together. <laughs> well, what I would say is, is your whole arc with Vulcan. That's easily 75. Yeah. Yeah. Get Tony. Take Tony to New Vulcan. He needs to go get the well from old Vulcan. Come back to New Vulcan. Fix that shit. Figure out something's wrong on Earth and go to Earth. That You're, you're, you're hitting 100K. Mm-hmm. Find Khan. Fix Khan. Fuck Khan. 152, 175. <laughs> exactly. And in there, one of the big plots, actually one of the big plots is, is um, 
uh, Kirk and Spock coming online. So. And that's a and that's a that's a fifty k subplot. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, two two twenty five. And I think what um, also you need to um, when you're focusing on um, your story word count is that you're not telling a story, you're showing a story. You can tell a story in five minutes. But to show a story is an entirely different ballgame. Yeah, I could I could write an abstract of the entire series in 10,000 words, and you'd know everything that happened, sort of. But it's not very satisfying. The only time that's satisfying, and I mean this literally, the only time that's satisfying, is when you have been following a series for a decade, and you have and it's, it, it ends on a cliffhanger, and the author has basically abandoned it, and it hasn't been updated in 10 years, and the author comes back and goes, I'm never coming back to this. Here's a summary of how the story would have ended. And you're going, yes! <laughs> Thank you. I Thank you so much. I finally know what happened. That's the only time that that's satisfying. And it's because you waited 10 years for that fucking summary. <laughs> We're not talking about you, Gina, um, Gina Yule, although I really wish you had done a fucking summary of that last book. <sighs> I can't talk about it. <sighs> So Dark Seraphia says this plotting. is plotting you dangerous because you can tell the whole story on yourself. And this is why I don't do scene maps and a lot of elaborate storyboarding is because I will tell myself the whole story and then nobody else will ever know it <laughs> but me because I'll be perfectly satisfied. But I have a problem with what you said about plotting being dangerous. Um, my well, lifetime word count is around... I don't know, upwards of 20 million words. And I've been plotting since I was 13 years old. There's nothing dangerous about plotting. I agree. You just have to know where your limits are. If you plot yourself out of a story, that doesn't invalidate the plot process. It invalidates your story. Was that ugly? Well, I don't know that I think it invalidates the story because I, the one time that I did that where I where I plotted myself out of the story, is because I was so entertained and so, I mean, I plotted that thing down to the nat's ass details. And, and you're done. I had, to, I had told the story. I was done, and I don't think it. I still I still enjoy that story in my head. I know it as well as anything <laughs> I've written. But no one else will. <laughs> That's right. Which is why I know that I have a limit when I'm plotting that if I get that detailed, um, that I'm satisfied with the storytelling that's happened in my head and um, that I don't need to go, um, I don't need to go any further with it. I, I've, I've heard it I've, and I just don't, I'm like, eh. That's where it was really interesting too. Mapping. Scene mapping isn't the same thing as knowing all the twists and turns. I know all the twists and turns of a story, even if I don't scene map. I know where I'm going, and I know how I'm going to get there. Yeah. It just, but a scene got... map is only ever useful is when you're um, 
when your internal for me a scene map is only useful when my internal motivations outweigh my external motivations when I have to inject a certain kind of um, internal plot to each of my scenes I need to know where that needs to happen in each um, in each chapter so but for me at that point even a scene map might be um, Harry argues with Dumbledore. Harry goes to the room of requirement. He goes to the library. And that would be the scene map. But I need to know what the order is so I know where to inject my internal motivation if it's important for my plot. But mm-hmm. I don't scene map often either. See, I think it just depends upon every, every, every author who's trying to learn to plot will probably, I can't say every, but most authors will get to the point where they're, they're, if they keep pushing their plotting and how much they plot or how they plot or trying, they're eventually going to hit a point where they've plotted themselves out of a story. And then they're going to go, okay, I've learned something. That's my one step too far. And, you know, for some, some people that might be writing a detailed summary might be their step too far. They can map out a bunch of scenes, but they could not write a detailed summary because that would, you know, I can write a detailed summary of the world building, the background, the story is going to be told. It would be perfectly fine, but once I start laying out the scenes in my head in a map and writing down what scenes are going to happen when and in what order and who's in them, that's when I'm out of, that's when I'm, I'm out of it. So it, I think everybody has a different... Um, but... On the other side of it, I don't think a scene map is integral to a plot. Um, oh, I your plot agree. is Your plot can be a broad stroke. It, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have to be a blow-by-blow <laughs> account of your story. Yeah, sometimes you know, sometimes my plot for like a ten or 15,000-word story is a single sheet of printed um, where I talk about the major plot points that I need to hit, what the overall arc is. I just have a summary of the the motivations or who the uh, protagonists and antagonists are, and that's it. That's all I need to get through the story writing. Um, but when I'm structuring 100K, I need a little more structure. Yeah. I need to know, okay, um, these the first half of my story is this. So when I hit my um, my climax, I'm at the right spot. Because I'm a... I'm kind of a long-haul plotter. I plot up a lot, and then I have a short drop from my climax. Um, that's, just, that's the way I've always plotted. Um, and that's what I prefer to read. I prefer to read a long path up and then a short drop after the climax. I don't, And my hand is just waving in the air like you guys can see that shit. I don't like a um, an even climb and then an even fall. When the fall in no. action is equal to the climb, I'm like, are you fucking done yet? Because <laughs> I was done 20K ago. Why aren't you done? <laughs> I completely agree. I, and, I mean, I have, I have, there are stories I have, like, the climate, the falling action is like 500 words. And it's like, well, okay, maybe that's a little abrupt, but I don't give a shit. I'm, I'm done. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like, okay, it's a 40,000 word story and I gave you 400 words of falling action. That's, that's ninety nine percent climb. <laughs> Return of the King had twenty two different endings. Okay, <laughs> and that's a little much. Enough, yeah. It's like no, um, and that's something to be aware of about yourself too. Is when you're doing estimating word count because, like, if you know, um, 
like um, if, with Kira and I, both who do a steep climb, um, not, I mean, do a long climb and a steep fall, we know we don't have to account for a lot of words for falling action. If you do a lot of falling action, you have to figure that into your word count because you're going to be doing more little scenes to show the aftermath of this or that or stuff that I typically don't go into. So it's hard to um, – sometimes you can spitball somebody else's word count just based upon their summary and what you know about their writing style, but it's something that you really kind of have to develop um, – the only person who's ever going to get it close to right is probably you. I mean, if, and, sometimes if Kira tells me an idea of hers, because I've read so many of her stories, and I know what her style is like, if she gives me enough of an idea, I can go, okay, that's, prob- that's probably 100,000 words or 120,000 words or whatever. But, you know, but I don't know what all's in her head, so that could be completely off. What I would say is that it, and it, it's a cliche, but it really does boil down to experience. I mean, I've been writing for 30 years. So when I say I can do this in 10K, I can, unless it's Harry Potter. But I, even knowing myself the way I do and, and knowing what kind of writer I am and knowing where my plots go and where my plans go and where my scenes are going to be and what I can do with 1,500 words versus what I can do with 10,000 words, um, I still sometimes I underestimate. It happens. And then that's when you edit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I actually you learned some, some of my word estimation. I actually learned in technical writing more than um, fiction writing, which is weird, but it, it actually is not all that odd. Because when somebody says, here's a, here's a piece of software that we've just finished, um, how, how, much, how, how, big a, how big of a manual is it going to take to write a training guide for this? And, you know, it's, that's actually really hard to do if you don't know the software. But, you know, I could look at it and look at it and go, okay, I'm going to need, um, conceptually to explain this stuff, I'm going to need 15,000 words, I'm going to need 80 screenshots. Um, it's going to be 100 pages. Um, <laughs> you have to be able to you, and get close to right. And sometimes, you know, you get, it, you get it wrong and you have to call back and go, why didn't you tell me there was this entire administrative sub-feature that you wanted me to document that's actually more complicated than the entire software application? They're like, oh. Because now I need 200 pages. That's right. Now I need that's a 200 50 more screenshots. And that costs a lot more to print. And since that shit back, you know, back in the day, that was um, everything was on paper. So, you know, it made a difference yeah. um, how many how long your, your documentation was at the end. Um, but, you know, I had to learn workout estimation, and they go, well, how long will it take you to explain this concept? I'm like, well, I can explain that concept in a thousand words, or I can explain that concept in, um, which is mostly bullet points. That's actually a lot of bullet points for a thousand words. That's a pretty difficult concept. But, um, but and, going um, back to what we've been discussing and hammering on for the past two or three years, word economics. You yes. can tell something in ten words, or you can tell something in a hundred words. So my I have to say this, like I said, my sister is um, a technical writer. That's her full time job now, and that's something I used to do. So, but I feel that I have experience. You know, she and I will like tell me like what she's doing, and she gets this raw material sometimes. Sometimes she writes it herself, but sometimes she gets raw material for a guide from somebody else. And one of the people she gets material from. He writes technical instructions as a narrative, and she just, it makes her crazy. She gets one of his documents, and she's just like, oh, my God, because he'd be like, 
you know, turn on the device and then do this, search for your settings and then do this, you might find this. And if your process is like this, and she's like, it's just this wall of text, like he's telling somebody a story and she's like. My eyebrow is twitching. <laughs> that like, is not what I would want to encounter as a person using a new program. No, it's like you cannot teach people to use a piece of a computer equipment with, you know, six pages of narration. It doesn't work that way. You need screenshots and very succinct bulleted lists. So she has to convert his stuff. And sometimes people are very, t- people are very attached to their writing, even technical writing. And she'll convert this and, like, strip out 90% of what he's written. And he's like, but all my concepts, I wanted them to be sure they understand. And she's like, I know it hurts, but you're just going to have to let go. You're going to have to suck it up, dude, because that's not how that shit works. But whatever, you, whatever you're writing, you learn as you do it. The more you do, the more times you've explained how to use a feature, the more you are absolutely know that you can explain how to use that feature in 500 words. The more times you write a sex scene, the more you know that your sex scenes are 250 words. You know, Unless you're like having, you know, and, and and you know, some people their sex scenes are two thousand words, and that's a lot of fucking. It is. You better be having doing something a little bit more. If you're gonna take two thousand words for fucking, you, I, I expect a little bit more than just than just there. There should be some whips. <laughs> yes, right. Whips, chains, maybe a pair of handcuffs. Some spanking. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know what else you got going on. But no, maybe gun I mean, fight in the middle. <laughs> What I, <laughs> what I would say is that my sex scenes in Ties That Bind are a lot more, they're they're a lot longer than my sex scenes in any other thing I've, I've ever written. Well, yeah, but that's totally different. It is totally different because it's, it's more than just people, sex. Yeah, yeah. It, that, there's a whole, I hate to use the word, but there's a whole dynamic going on underneath there. <laughs> But you get you used to you get used to picking out and going I can do this in this amount of words and then I think this where people get thrown off and it's something you alluded to early on is they hadn't considered the consequences of the decisions they made in their plot and then they get into writing it and they're going oh I thought I could tell this story in ten thousand words but there's thirty thousand words of consequences I hadn't considered and right. um, that's also something you just have to. It's one of the things I'm, I would say I'm moderately good at finding consequences, but sometimes I find the wrong consequences. Um, I zero in on the wrong thing, and then I get another writing, and I go, oh, shit. I was totally focused (laughs) over here, and the real problem is over here. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's kind of annoying. Um, But, you know, Kira's exceptional at, at spotting consequences, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but even sometimes you miss them. I do, yeah. It happens. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've um, I've made, um, yeah, I've done it. And um, the thing is, is I really depend on my ability to do that. And so when I miss something, it really, really bothers the shit out of me. I mean, it... When I don't think something through all the way, and that's what it is. When I don't think it all the way to the very end, and I I stop somewhere thinking I'm done, and I'm not actually done, and I miss something, it is 
you guys will never know how much that unintentional male pregnancy bothers me in Lantian Legacy. <laughs> Not that I wrote male pregnancy, but I don't have a problem with it, but that I wrote it unintentionally. It bothers the shit out of me. that I didn't notice it until it had been on my fucking website for over a year. Of course, my betas didn't notice it either. I'm just saying. I'm looking at you guys. You're right there together, side by side. <laughs> they really are right at the moment. <laughs> For those of you who haven't read Atlantean Legacy, Atlantean Legacy is, um, Theseus is um, the living organism that Atlantis, the ship, she, the city is Theseus. And he's male. And um, he reproduces asexually. Um, and at the end of Lantean Legacy, he has spawned material to create a ship, and he's currently nurturing that ship, which will eventually be called Ares. Um, and Atlantis, the, the AI, announces to the people on the city that she's pregnant. And so in my mind, it was Atlantis that was pregnant the whole time, because apparently I'm a sexist. Um, And I never really focused on the idea that my male ship was pregnant. And it didn't occur to me until like a fucking year later that I had written Accidental Male Preg. But that isn't what you're talking about. What, What were you talking about? Um, last summer, mm-hmm. your Harry Potter. Oh, God. Oh, God. And the thing is, I had the same thing. I, I remember it so well because I had the same meltdown over Lucifer. Not the, no, it was not the same literal same meltdown, but it was over not thinking things through. Yeah, because, um, frankly, Every, and this is an epiphany that every single person who's ever written Harry Potter as a sentinel or written sentinels in that verse um, needs to acknowledge that either sentinels in Britain ignore abused children or Dumbledore used magic to hide the abuse being done to Harry. And I didn't address either of them. Either circumstance. Yeah, yeah, they're both technically pregnant. So, yeah, Atlantis and... Yeah, because I recognized it on the show. I had that epiphany mid-podcast. And I was like... Yeah. (laughs) You weren't happy. You weren't happy at all. And I totally understood. Although, I think you had a... Um, because that is one of your strengths is seeing consequences and understanding ramifications, and um, it was a bigger deal for you because than 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 my own meltdown about than than the one my screw up with the plot of Beautiful Decline was for me. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, but it, it happens. The things that we're, that we think we're the best at, or we are the best at, our biggest strength sometimes. Bite us in the ass sometimes and we mess up. Oh, I'm going to poke it for a minute. So, Penn, 
if you made muggle sentinels really, really rare, how rare were magical sentinels? That That's how you addressed Harry being abused by no one noticing because there were very few muggle sentinels. How many magical sentinels were there? I'm all silent while I'm waiting, I'm, I'm waiting patiently for her answer. <laughs> because the question is, is if there are, pl- or, you know, several, say 10, 15, 20 magical sentinels in, in Britain, and not a single one of them ever took a peek at Harry Potter? Not one. In 11 years. Did a stroll past Privet Drive to check to see how Harry Potter was doing? They kept to the magical world. See, that just bothers the shit out of me. <laughs> Not your story. Not your story. Just, just the whole thing. The whole thing just bothers the shit out of me. It just yeah, see, that really radio mad. Show, that radio show told me if I ever wanted to do a Harry Sentinel verse, I'd have to go back to the beginning. Um and reconstruct things from the beginning. That either Harry was better hidden, which is which is uglier, or Sentinels and Guides got involved. I think when you when you make Dumbledore hide Harry from Sentinels, that makes Dumbledore's actions so much more gross. So much more overtly disgusting. Right. Which and this is this is that consequences thing that you're talking about is that sometimes when you're trying to plug a plot hole, you create a new thing that you have to address the consequences of, which is fine. I mean, I I actually don't um I I don't know the stories we're talking about, so I don't know how they they went that route. But if you are going to make Dumbledore uglier and darker, then that needs to be, if you address it, um, then it, then it, it all works. But if you, if you ignore the consequences of Dumbledore being an even darker person um, and what that would look like, and it just kind of, it, it's just, it, it, it's one of those things that just you kind of have to factor in. Oh, dark says, because if Sentinels are plentiful enough to stop all abuse, then why are there cops at all? That's that's disingenuous. Because even in, even in stories where there's plenty of Sentinels, where Sentinels are very well known, and they're very active in their communities, a lot of them serve as cops, number one. Um, number two, um, a civilian Sentinel wouldn't have um, the ability to act as police force, but they could report systematically be yeah, automatic supporters of abuse, of crimes that they see, you know. It, it, it's my headcanon that in areas around Sentinels, um, that neighborhoods where Sentinels are known to live um, um, have are coveted um, by people who want their kids to be safe, um, that they want to live in neighborhoods that have a lot of Sentinels in them because they there are, there's less crime in neighborhoods of their sentinels, so that sentinels do bring down 
what you might think of as crime behind closed doors. But there's no way, it's not like you can come right out and say that in your story because, you know, people, what what's a, a, just a simple fact of, of, of re, the reality for in, in an AU where sentinels and guides are common, um, it doesn't stop all crime. I'm not saying, no, no, I'm not saying that at all because sentinels are going to be, um, You'd have to have a lot more sentinels than I've ever written in this. And story. they're not going to be wide open twenty four seven. Right, they have to shut down sometimes. But like, why would you need I, a huge number of cops? Because because civilians aren't cops, and sentinel civilians wouldn't be cops. Um, so unless all um, sentinels are cops, they don't have the ability to act and function as police in a civilized society. Yeah, a lot of I we I tend to write sentinels a lot in the military. So if they're drawn to that kind of service, um I mean this is just one of those things of where you have to um um actually my 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 world my world my headcanon for sentinels is that they're more drawn towards the fringes of society, which is why they go off to war and stuff and not in areas of dense population and that actually in sentinel canon um, one of the things that, that, that speculated that they trib- that contributed to the decline of sentinels was increasing population density, because they did and urban sprawl, urban sprawl because there were no boundaries to police, there were no outside threats to look out for. You know, sentinels were outside the camp, outside the tribe, looking for threats, listening for things. They weren't in the middle of. Um, so it, it's 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 a matter of how you approach your sentinel world building is. To what you, um, and I actually would think. Go ahead. One thing that really bothers me that I see some people doing in um, fusions where they give sentinels and guides um, social powers that border on abusive. Like, I don't know, giving um, a sentinel the right to come into, say, the FBI and get people fired just because he's a sentinel or he's a guide. And um, bullying people who are not a sentinel or a guide, um, it's not the mark of a civilized person, number one, to treat other people that way. And number two, it's not really how the canon for sentinels and guides works. They're supposed to be Protectors. And they're supposed to protect the tribe. And in a tribe, in canon, there was one sentinel, and everybody else wasn't a sentinel, and he didn't lord his power over over his tribe. He took care of his tribe. Right. And, and that's what I think... Um, you read these AUs where the Sentinels are terrible bullies, and I just don't like it. I don't either. See, I my head canon for one of the reasons why I write very strong, very strong, very powerful Sentinels as being rare is because of the issue of privacy. That if everybody was a super, that most Sentinels and guides probably fall in the low middle to middle range, um, and they're not capable of hearing without really straining themselves. Um, you know, several streets away to a child being abused. Um, 
and that it is the small number that are capable of that and that they have to dial it off because they can't just they have to have that's why you know they have to be able to shut that that sensory input off sometimes or they would go crazy but um one of the sentinel stories i'm working on where um has an unusually strong sentinel and everywhere he goes, he's hearing crimes happening several streets away. And he works with the FBI, and he has to keep directing cops out. Because I wanted to show what that would look like. He has to keep directing cops out to go stop crimes while he's trying to focus on the crime he's trying to solve with the FBI, because I think that's what the reality of a super super strong sentinel would be like, and it would be something that would not be common. It would burn him out. He would be – I mean, he'd eventually – but, you know, also um, – that you have to balance protective instincts with um, things like, I don't know, civil rights and um, free will and mm-hmm. um, the knowledge that you don't have uh, – that, that a truly just, good, and heroic person doesn't inflict their will on somebody else for their own good. Right. And I think I think whatever you do with your Sentinel world building, and this is one of the things that I we've talked about in other shows about when you do fusions like this, where you take a little bit of this fan, this fan and a little bit of that fan, and things that you find appealing, and you throw them together, your world building, and you kind of toss it. And um, and I'm not talking to anybody who's t- chatting in the room because I'm sure these, these people have all thought through their world building, but when you do that and you don't think through the consequences of putting together elements of different types of sentinel world building is you can write yourself into a place where there's no internal consistency in your own in your in your own story's um world rules and you have to yeah, that's one of the reasons why if you're going to write a sentinel au is you have to be one of the reasons why i stick to a lot of the a lot of times the same world building or very similar world building is because i've thought through what the social and political and the ramifications are of of that set of rules working together. And sometimes when I've decided to to venture into somewhere somewhere else or do something different, um, it you get to go back to the drawing board and think that through. Um, I've written a few stories where um, guides could con- a certain level a certain high level guide could compel people to tell the truth. That has a lot of legal implication to it. Um, oh, it does. I but, didn't address it in one story, but another story I decided to address it and just said those kind of guides, the Supreme Court said they can't work. They can't question suspects. Dark says you, your can doesn't have to match everyone else. That's absolutely true, but it has to be internally consistent, and that's absolutely true. But also it's really important if it makes sense. You can be internally consistent all day long, if, but if it doesn't make sense, you got a problem. <laughs> Not you yeah, specifically. I'm not talking about you specifically. I don't. Um, I've only read a few things of yours. Um, I read your really awesome Tony is a girl AU on the workshop. Um, awesome Tony Loki. That was. I don't even like Tony Loki, and you and you kind of incepted me a little bit. And I'm not completely mad at you about it. A little bit. But a lot of times you'll see you'll see writers um, uh, throw all these elements together and stir it up, and 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 you're like, okay, okay, that actually. But what about this? <laughs> and I don't ask. 
I don't ask because I don't do that to other writers, but sometimes it'll throw me completely out of a story if there's no logic. If it yeah, doesn't you, make sense, even if it's consistent and it doesn't make sense, I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah, you can you can adhere to your own rules left, right, and center, but if your rules fundamentally make people question, um, it's sort of like the whole Sentinels not knowing, not not. That's you just you. There, there's a I, I've I'm, I'm sure I'm sure most people know what lampshading is, but for those of you who don't know the term, lampshading is addressing questions before the audience can ask them. And when you are doing something that is going to raise questions, you you got to lampshade the fuck out of that shit, or people are going to sit there and go. But what um, about? <laughs> but why didn't the Sentinels know that Harry was an abused kid? You know, because they're going to ask, so you have to lampshade that. Because I made right them the abundant. Front. I made them fucking abundant in my story. Like, hugely abundant. To the point where there's a pride in London. And... I can't even talk about it. It's so annoying. It is so annoying. I haven't read that story since I finished it. I'll probably never read it again. Because it was so annoying. And I have two Sentinel stories, one where Hermione's a Sentinel and one where Harry's a Sentinel, and I didn't address it on either (laughs) (laughs) It's frustrating. It's super frustrating. It's super frustrating. It drives me batshit. Well, you know, some, no no writer is perfect. Um, there are holes. That, there's always going to be a little hole you can poke in somebody's world building. That's just the way. Because we're human. You know? I can poke holes in my um, own world building. I poke like, holes in my world building all the time. I'm like, why the fuck did you do that? You little silly ass. Let me go over here and fix this shit. But um, when the author leaves a hole you can drive a truck through... That's an entirely different matter. <laughs> yeah, it's that suspension of disbelief thing, right? As long as you can continue to suspend your disbelief, you may notice it and go, yeah, all right, yeah, all right, yeah, all right. But you just, you kind of notice it, but you keep going because you're still enjoying it. But when, yeah, your disbelief, <laughs> but when your disbelief is shattered and it's lying in pieces on the ground and there is no amount of glue that will put that shit back together again, you just have to get out. <laughs> And, but, you know, I think I think that you learn something, and I learned something. Does it annoy me enough that I would redo it? Probably not, because they're both short stories, and they're, they're not going anywhere. Um, they're not part of a bigger series. If it were – well, except for that one's in Alpha Chronicle, but I'll never really go back to that particular story in the Alpha Chronicles, because really the Alpha Chronicles are about couples coming together and bonding. Um, so, um, no. But if it was like an integral part of, say, Sentinels of Atlantis, or um, if it was in, you know – I would address it, you know. I would, I would go back and fix it. Um, but I learned something from that, and um, I learned not to depend on my first cloud. Because talk about ramification writing. Um, I don't know what you mean there, but I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Um, is that one of the ways I do that is to write my idea down and I plot around it in little clouds. Um, and 
Alan did that once for that story, and I didn't play it all the way out, and I never did play it all the way out with there being um, multiple hundreds of meetings of um, of of sentinels in London, and no one. Um, paying attention and that the alpha of um, the magical pride never went to visit Harry. He would have been a latent guide or a latent sentinel his whole life. And he's fucking Harry Potter. So why didn't (sighs) it's super annoying. I, you know, soulmate, the way I view soulmate attraction um, when I'm writing it, it's, um, I kind of like pluck a little bit from Plato a little bit in that, um, soulmates are really one, cre- one being that have been separated and put in two different bodies and that, um, the law of, um, the universe basically is that two like bodies will find each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so if part of you is walking around in another body Eventually, your body and their body are going to come together. It's going to happen. You're going to come back to it. That's just the law of the universe. Two like bodies will will come together. Two like items will will find one another. I'm sorry, I keep hitting my mic because I'm talking with my hands. Um, <clears throat> and, and that's how I approach it. Of course, in the magical world, it's really easy to do because I like the Book of Souls. <laughs> And there are spells and, you know, just, you know, all kinds of fun stuff like that. So, but yeah, that's how I approach that whole soulmate thing. Um, and I enjoy the soulmate trope a lot. So I had, I had, I know we're almost at the end here, but I had an idea on this, how to tell if a word count is too big thing. And it may not be a good idea, but if some people <laughs> wanted to... Submit, send in. You have to be brave to let us talk about the high-level plot. But, like, send them. And if you want, we could say, okay, to me this looks like, based on what you said, it would take me, I don't know, 50,000 words to execute that, and here's why. Um, yeah, I'm going to try it out if you want to send a plot in. Um, you can send it, or you could post it on the forum, and that way we could all see it. And everybody can make guesses. Yeah, I'll create I'll create a thread um, somewhere um, for people who want to um, throw up some plots, and um, I'll, we'll figure it out. But look for it on the forum, and we can try to go through some estimations to give people some idea of of what estimating word count looks like. Okay, we're we're done. We're at, we're at eight seconds. You guys have a great weekend. We'll probably come back on Sunday and do this some more. Bye. Bye. <laughs>